Greetings and welcome to Witnesses of the King. This time we'll be looking in Acts chapter 10, Healing, Resurrection, and Salvation, part two. Last time in part one, we talked about the healing and the resurrection that Peter was involved in, in uh, Acts chapter 10, actually Acts chapter 9, leading into chapter 10. And this time we're going to look at this issue of salvation. Uh, when he goes to the Gentiles for the very first time, chapter 10 is a pivotal chapter in the entire Bible. It is the longest single narrative account in the book of Acts. And that's because most of this account is repeated in the next chapter, in chapter 11. And what we see here is like we've seen with the Ethiopian eunuch back there in Acts chapter 8, that God is preparing both sides. He's preparing the hearer. He's preparing the one who will come proclaim. And he's bringing them together in this divine appointment to hear the gospel. And so this is Luke's account of how the gospel is spreading in these early years of the church. What's happening here in chapter 10 may be as much as 10 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. So the church has been growing and has been expanding for all these years, but mostly in the context of uh, Judaism and mostly Jewish converts at this time. And so we're going to see this great expansion uh, here. Next time, we'll really focus on how the Gentiles exactly are being brought into the faith and how Gentiles being brought into the faith affects our understanding of our faith and how we practice it in New Testament Christianity. And so what we're going to look at this time is we're going to look at the chief actors involved in this account of Peter taking the gospel to the centurion Cornelius and his family. And we're going to take a, a close look at each and every one of these. The centurion, the, uh, the angel that comes and brings this news, and indeed Peter himself, the apostle. And then finally, and most importantly, the work of the Holy Spirit in all of this. And then we're going to make application of these things. Well, first I want to share with you a map, and this is something you've seen before in our previous discussions, but it shows the, uh, the travel from Jerusalem down to Lydda and then on to the coast to Joppa where Peter is staying. This man Cornelius is residing in Caesarea and he sends people down to Joppa to fetch Peter and bring him back. So there you have a good picture of the exact uh, travel that was happening during that time and what the distances involved are. So without a delay then, let's get to the text and let's first talk about this fellow, the centurion. Um, let's begin Acts chapter 10, verse 1, and see what we find. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius! And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, at your reading of Scripture today, 
We pray that you'll use these passages and speak to our hearts. Enlighten us and show us your truth. And by your Holy Spirit, lead us to him whom you sent, who sent you. Lord, I pray this day that we'll have understanding of these things. I pray, Lord, that we will surrender to you what is due and give you the next step in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in these uh, passages here, we're finding uh, profound importance, and we're going to take a look at the, uh, the four most important actors in this scene here. First of all, the centurion. He was of the what's known as the Italian cohort. And he wasn't just an ordinary centurion. He seemed to be some kind of a specialist. He's far from Italy, obviously. He's uh, stationed out here in what was a borderline province, a province that was often troubled. These provinces of Judea and Galilee, there were many uprisings, there were many difficulties, and they were often troubled. So the uh, Roman city of Caesarea there, built on the coast, would want some one reliable to lead the main security details available there. Now, I want to contrast these two cities that they're in. This Roman uh, centurion is in Caesarea. And Caesarea was a fairly new city built by the Romans. So at that time, state-of-the-art kind of place, a lot of people from out of town, a lot of successful Roman citizens residing there, making a living there, uh, doing the business of the province that they were in. And contrast that to Joppa, which was a very ancient city and primarily Jewish. And it was from Joppa that Peter was residing in the house of one Simon, a tanner. And so there's a great contrast between these two cities. And it isn't it interesting that the more cosmopolitan of the two, the more well-to-do, this wealthy and this, this person of influence, this centurion, sends to humble Peter, the fisherman from the little town of Joppa. And so it is an interesting irony that we begin with. Now, most importantly, this man was a called a God-fearer. And he that is one who believed God and followed Judaism. They believed in the God of the Jews, and they, they followed Judaism to the best of their ability. Now, without actually becoming a Jew, that is going through the rite of circumcision and becoming what's called a proselyte, a conversion to Jew, Judaism, a God-fearer instead um, could not partake in the sacrifices, could not go into the inner court of the temple. They were always restricted to the court of the Gentiles. And so they could come close, but not too close, not able to go into the inner court, not able to offer their own sacrifices for worship. And so his worship was the alms that he gave and uh, in caring for the poor and the prayers that he made. This was his worship, and it showed that he was serious about God because we know those are two things. As you read the entire scripture, those are near and dear to God. Those are important. Those are priorities of our faith. And indeed, he is showing himself to be a man of faith, to be a man who believes in this God, so much so that as James challenges us in James chapter 2, this man's faith is resulting in works. And if we take a look, we see he's also very obedient. When the angel comes and tells him, he immediately decides he's going to do it. He's going to obey. And first thing in the morning, he sends men to go find Peter. And so we see that he obeys quite directly. 
Then when Peter shows up, as we'll see later in verse 33, he indicates he's ready to hear and obey what Peter has to say. And in verse 22, we say that um, he he is a devout soldier. As the people come relate who this man is to Peter, they describe him as an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. So this is a man that had a reputation with those of the synagogue. In other words, if they were, he was well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, and that assumes, you know, not the entire world, but there in Caesarea, then he is obviously active and involved and learning, and he has built himself already a reputation of following God. And so he's well-known among these people. And we look in verse 24 here, when Peter came, Interestingly, this man already has his whole family assembled and close friends. And so we see that this is a man who gives alms, who uh, gives frequent prayers, who's interested in the salvation of his family and friends. He has built a good reputation among the Jews in his city. And I bring all this up to make one very important point. This man was not yet saved. In other words, should something happen to Cornelius before those men return with Peter, this is a man, although that he is a good man, he will ultimately have to pay the price for his own sins and the eternal suffering of hell. And this is the biblical truth that all those without Christ will likewise perish. And you say, well, that's not fair. You know, what's a person to do if they haven't heard of Christ? Well, look at this. God is making a way. God is making a way for him to hear, and he will respond positively. But it's very clear. In fact, as the account is given to the people in Jerusalem of what had happened, when this man's words are recounted, look what he says in Acts chapter 11, verse 14. Uh, He's told to go and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. So the angel says that Simon Peter is going to come and declare to you a message by which you will be saved. This is powerful and important to understand because this applies directly to you and me. It is easy to be outwardly religious. It is easy still in this nation of the United States and in many places of the world, it is easy to be a Christian. Let's just be honest about that. And there are benefits to being a Christian other than eternal salvation in Christ, which is the main thing. But the secondary things are good too. We get help and support and love from, we we get a built-in community, a family, which will care for us. And indeed, those are all wonderful things. But we can actually be enjoying all those things and fulfilling some of the needs of our mind and our bodies within the context of church and still be lost. That's why we don't want to look at a passage like this without really applying it to ourselves. We want to look at this closely and examine it and see, gee, is that me? I do these great works. I do prayers. Jesus warned us. Many will come to him on the day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these great things in your name? And he says, away from me, I never knew you. And this is why Peter tells us in his letter to be careful to make our calling and election sure. In other words, to make sure that we're in the faith, to examine ourselves. This is a great opportunity to do that by seeing this account here in Acts chapters 10 and on into 11. So 
he did these works, he did these prayers. He was a good man from a worldly perspective, but the angel tells him, go send for Peter. Now let's talk for a moment about this angel. This angel is fascinating and angels are worth mentioning every single time they appear. And I don't know when you're watching this, but right now when I'm recording it, it's December and we're all beginning to think about Christmas. In fact, we have been for a while, some since Halloween, I think it's too early, but we're thinking about Christmas and the account of the angels and how they're intimately involved. It's always fascinating to me, but he does, this angel here does what angels do. They bring the message of God. That's what the word angel literally means is messenger. We made it a proper noun, calling it specifically something angels, uh, just because of the specific instances in the Bible in which these messengers are heavenly beings that are not human beings and they are not God. And so these are created uh, beings that we see. I want you to notice what the angel does. The angel comes and gives a message but I want you to notice what he doesn't do. He does not share the gospel. In fact, search the scriptures and here's what you're going to find. Angels never share the gospel. And when we find the angels in the gospels and in the book of Acts, they're doing many things. They're bringing many messages as they brought messages to the family of John the Baptist, to Joseph and to Mary, and to help them and to protect them and to prepare them for what was happening. They Here in the book of Acts, we find them uh, freeing the prisoners and we find them coming to people and speaking with people and delivering messages, but they never share the gospel. Now we might pause and ask for a moment, why is that? Why did the angels not come and proclaim the gospel? Well, first and foremost, I want to say this. It's because the angels cannot understand the gospel. You heard me right. These great beings that seem perfect in every way, that are sent by God, that do exactly what they're told, they're not capable of comprehending the gospel. Peter says as much in his first letter, in 1 Peter 1.12, listen to how he says it. He's talking about how the scriptures came and how the gospel was revealed through the prophets of old. And look what he says. He says, it was revealed to them, that is the prophets of old, that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Things in which angels long to look. In other words, angels desire to understand. They, they look at that, they look at the gospel, and they're very interested in it. But look how the gospel is given, even in the prophets of old, all the prophecies, all those things given by men, given through men by the moving of the Holy Spirit of God. And so the gospel is preached person to person throughout history, not angel to person. So they can't speak of because they have not sinned, they cannot speak of sin. Because they have not sinned, they have no need of repentance and can't tell us about repentance. Because they've not received the mercy of God, they cannot tell us about the mercy of God because they have not received grace, they can't really tell us about grace. Now, they can t could tell us in theory about those things, they understand the definition of the terms, they know history and know what God has done and know what's called mercy and grace, but they have never experienced it. Angels are not qualified to bring the gospel you, dear Christian, are more qualified than an angel to preach the gospel.
to your neighbors. And guess what? An angel's not going to do it. Your neighbor's got you. And if you know you plus God makes a majority every time. And I think maybe we're touching on something here that might be a reason why so many people professing to be Christian are hesitant to share their faith. Could it be that perhaps many of them have never really gotten honest with God about their sins? Have never really thrown themselves upon the mercy of God, received forgiveness by His great grace? Just a thought and an opportunity for us to examine ourselves. This angel is called a ministering spirit, according to the book of Hebrews, and he serves the church here by helping to make the connection, just like he did for Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. But it was Philip who came and preached the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and likewise here it is Peter who comes and preaches the gospel to this man. Uh, Cornelius and his family. Now, before we read on, I want to point out to you a trend with the Apostle Peter here. The Apostle Peter went to the Samaritans and laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, the Samaritans, they were Jewish heretics. In other words, they had a lot wrong. They had intermarried with other people from other nations. They had rejected much of the scriptures, only holding to the Pentateuch, and they had even misinterpreted what little bit of the Bible they embraced. And so Peter, however, goes there, sees that they're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he acknowledges it by laying hands on them so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And now here is Peter in Joppa, and now he's staying in the house of a tanner. Now, tanners were habitually unclean according to the Jewish definitions of cleanliness in the law. In the book of Leviticus, we find that if you touch a dead animal, you are considered unclean and therefore shouldn't be closely associating with someone who is clean because uncleanness always spreads. Cleanness never does, interestingly. And so, this uh, unclean state that this man is in is going to be perpetual because this is the work that he does. He is a tanner, which means he tans the hides of animals, constantly working with dead animals, constantly unclean. Peter's staying with this guy. And this is interesting to me because it shows a progression. He's staying with, or he goes and sees the Samaritans, approves of their faith in Christ, lays hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit, goes down to Joppa, He's staying at the house of someone who's a tanner. And now Peter's going to get this great vision that the Gentiles are going to be coming into the church wholesale now. It's going to be complete. They're going to be coming in like crazy. And watch when these men show up to Peter's house. He not only invites them in, they're going to stay the night. And when Peter goes to visit Cornelius, he's going to go right in the house also traditionally illegal, as he will point out, as we will see. Peter's progressing toward God's vision that God gives, that the the game is being changed a bit. The rules are being changed because the rules put down for the Israelites were meant to teach many things. They weren't meant to be a perpetual yoke upon people. Let's take a look here, starting in verse 9, and go along with Peter on this. I'm going to go ahead and go full screen on that because we're going to read quite a bit. Hang in there. 
The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once. Now Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up! I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death 
by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach the gospel and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so here we have this powerful account that that Peter went there and he preached the gospel to these people. This vision that Peter received was repeated to him three times. And he summarizes it to Cornelius and then repeats the whole thing to the people at Jerusalem. So Luke is really, through this constant repetition, really showing us this is an important thing. God prepared Peter for this. And at that moment, the men came from Cornelius as soon as he had received this vision. And like Cornelius, Peter was obedient to go with these men the very next morning without hesitation. It may not have occurred to Peter to take this course of action without the prompting of the Holy Spirit. To go into a Gentile's house and preach the gospel was something that he was not accustomed to do. He was going where the believers were. He was going where the gospel had already been and he was sharing things with them and many more were coming and believing and and the church was growing. But it may not have occurred to him to go into a Gentile's house to share the gospel because of the cleanliness situation. So he comes to Cornelius, acknowledges this breaking of rules and the intervention of God, that God was clearly clearly showing him a change in things. He shares that God is doing something new, something special, a break from the pattern. So then he asks, why have you asked me here? And Cornelius shares his story. And then Peter shares the gospel. Now let's look at his gospel uh, very closely here just for a moment. And the summary of the gospel here, it's basically this. Jesus did good works. He was crucified. He was raised again. He appeared to the disciples. He's been appointed the judge of the living and the dead. I'm sure you include that when you share the gospel. And he commanded the preaching of the gospel. Do you include that when you share the gospel with people that This is an essential part of the Gospels that he commanded us to go and preach this Gospel. And all who believe receive the forgiveness of sins. A very important verse as we see at the end of this passage. Peter shares the Gospel, but then is suddenly interrupted. And he would say appropriately interrupted. Look at verse 44 here. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter. So he brought six people with him, we find out in the next chapter. They were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Uh, Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit Look, just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So now we talk about this fourth person, 
that we're talking about here, the Holy Spirit. We looked at the centurion, the angel, the apostle. Now we're looking at the, what the Holy Spirit does here. And we see in verses 44 through 48, the, the Holy Spirit just interrupts. Peter gets so far, and like any good preacher, I'm sure he had five or six more points to go on about, but the Holy Spirit intervenes. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why did God do it this way? Why would he have the Holy Spirit to come upon them right then with Peter present, right as he's preaching, and have them speak in tongues? If you'll recall in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit first came upon the believers there, the disciples, they spoke in tongues, but it was for a very practical reason. These were foreign languages, and people were gathered from all around the world. They had come to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost, and so it was very practical for them to be speaking in all these different languages. And it says there in the account that people were hearing them in their own language. But Peter's come in. He's already had a conversation with these people. They already have a common language. They are already conversing either in Greek or Aramaic or maybe a weird mixture of the two. But they already had these languages in common. This was not necessary. Well, the key is in verse 47 right there where Peter says they received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Peter and these six that were with him were at Pentecost. They saw what happened there. And when it happened there, these were all disciples who had personally seen the risen Christ that were Jews that were living there in the area that the Holy Spirit first came on. And what God was showing them is, look, this is what I'm giving to everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile. He was tearing down the distinctions. We'll talk about that in detail next time. The reason why Peter might need some clarity on this is as we saw in Acts chapter 2, he appeals to the prophet Joel and he says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and and etc. etc. Well, the context of Joel, Joel was speaking to the people of Israel. And so it might be taken of God's just going to do this for the people of Israel. But no, he's not. He's going to do it for all who believe. So this is powerfully important that the Holy Spirit comes. And the question I have for you is this, consider this, could the Holy Spirit have come upon Cornelius and his household before this? They appeared to already know something of Jesus. I don't think Peter was teaching them a whole lot that was new. And I have to suppose that the power of the Holy Spirit's not limited. And so the question is not, could it have come upon them before this, but why didn't it come upon these people before this? And it's very simple. Peter had to come. If you recall, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was, as they were traveling, asking the disciples, who are people saying that I am? And they're like, oh, some say the prophet, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, whatever. And then when he presses them some more, Peter's the one who speaks up, of course. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, very good. Now, you didn't figure this out. It's God in heaven who showed this to you. You are Peter, and on this rock, and he, and he makes a play on, on words on his name there, because Peter meant rock. On this rock, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Let's take a look at that. Matthew 16, 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so it's a fascinating verse, and you realize he's speaking to the disciples here, but in verse 19 in particular, these verbs are singular. In other words, he's saying to Peter, I'll give you the keys, Peter, of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so it was to Peter specifically he was speaking here. And this is in fact what Peter is doing. On the day of Pentecost, he unlocks the key for the Jews and preaches the sermon and many come to believe and are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit of God. Then he, Philip and some others go to Samaria. They preach the gospel. The people there believe, but had not received the Holy Spirit. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit until what? Until Peter came to them. And then Peter comes to them and now it shows the progression from the Jews to the Samaritans. And now Peter comes here and God gives him a vision and Peter goes to these God-fearing people and he preaches the gospel and then and only then does the Holy Spirit come upon them. This is in parallel, this trend that Peter does, unlocking the Jews, unlocking the Samaritans, now unlocking the Gentiles. This fits the pattern of what Jesus said was the going to be their pattern. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so indeed we see that being fulfilled because now the it is open now to the Gentiles. And I'm not saying there were no Gentile believers before this. The, the account doesn't say that, but the account is showing here clearly God is making a statement through Peter, through the one who Jesus said, metaphorically, the keys of the kingdom will be given to you. And he's making the statement, this is now going to the Gentiles. Now, we know Paul becomes God's specialist to the Gentiles. And the this is the beginning of the transition where it's going to be now primarily focused upon Paul. And the majority of people we see coming to faith will be Gentiles from this point forward in the book of Acts. But I want to take a moment and think about what this means that the Holy Spirit comes upon believers. Because I think as believers, we take it for granted. And I think unbelievers, they don't understand what this means by the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit of God? What's the big deal? You know, what does it mean when you have it? Well, first of all, we need to start with basic doctrine of God. God is separate. The word holy has more of a meaning of separation than it does about pure sinlessness. Now, we know that God is sinless because he's the one that defines sin. But we, we also know in his character he would not sin. But the Bible calls him holy. In other words, he, he's utterly distinct from us. And this holiness is something that sin cannot dwell with. Remember in the Old Testament and all those tedious laws that the Jews were given for how they were to approach God, they would have to, you know, they would have to offer sacrifice, but before they could offer sacrifice, they had to have a priest. Before they could have a priest, this had to be someone that was set apart for the purpose. 
made holy, consecrated, was another word that was used. So these people had to be set apart. They wore special garments, and everything they wore had to have the blood of a sacrifice sprinkled on it to purify it. And, you know, all that they did, they had to offer sacrifice for themselves, for the priests, and then they could go before God and offer sacrifice to him on behalf of the people. And so there was all this about approaching God, and it all had to do with sin. And it was all pointing to what Jesus Christ would ultimately do as our great high priest. But all this, God was telling the Israelites, this is necessary for me to dwell among you, that you've got to come out and be distinct and separate from those people. You've got to do the, the rituals. You've got to be clean in order for me to dwell with you. The New Testament says much the same thing. God cannot dwell with sin. And I'll tell you something truth, truthfully, we all know this. Within our hearts, we know that God cannot be in the presence of sin. And for that very reason, many of us hesitate to come to him because we think I'm unclean and I'm sinful and I cannot come before God in my state. Think about in the Bible when God shows up or an angel of the Lord shows up, people are afraid. And the reason why they're afraid is they understand they can't be in front of God. They, they would have to die to be in the presence of God. And that's exactly the point. And that is exactly true. However, the supreme privilege that is given by Jesus Christ is the forgiveness of sins. Notice that's where Peter leaves off when the Holy Spirit interrupts him. He says, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So your uncleanness, your sinfulness, the sins that you've committed, they are irrelevant when it comes to God bringing you the truth and saving you. So long as you let go of those things and you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because what he did upon the cross was pay the price for sin for all those who believe. A great exchange happens. And it's revealed in Romans chapter 3 is probably the best place to go to understand this exchange that happens. Late in the chapter, Paul talks about the fact that the righteousness of God has been made available to us through the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus takes our sin and our guilt and the wrath that was due to us for our sins, and he took those all upon himself and paid the price on the cross. And in exchange... For our sins, he gives us his righteousness. So as believers, when we stand before God, we don't stand there on our own merits. We could not stand there on our own merits. We stand there on the merits of Jesus Christ who died for us and gives us his righteousness that we might be saved. It's a supreme privilege of the gospel to be able to dwell with God and have the Holy Spirit then dwell in us, to work alongside us, to work within us, to change us, to mold us to the image of Jesus Christ. It's like having a guiding conscience that goes stronger and stronger and stronger the more that we exercise it with the Word of God and with prayer and with practice and obeying God, this Holy Spirit, the supreme privilege of the Christian. God saved this man, Cornelius, and his household. 
And something I know about Cornelius, having never met him, I know that he was a sinner, because we all are. And he was a Gentile, far off from Judaism, born elsewhere. But now he's been brought near, not by his good works, and not by Judaism, but by the Holy Spirit of God. All who were with him were believed, received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now at Christmas, we don't want to just celebrate that God came to be with us for a time, but the coming of Jesus Christ was that he would accomplish the work to make it possible for us to be with him all the time, beginning as soon as we believe. So my encouragements for you this day, and I have a few of them here I want to share with you, is first of all this, is it time to move beyond being a mere God-fearer? Especially in these days, what I'm seeing in these days, as there are great difficulties in the world, there's great difficulties in our nation, there's great struggle and division politically, and a lot of people see the, the nation taking a direction that is unfavorable, uh, going through a lot of practices that are um, ungodly. And all of a sudden, people are getting concerned, like, oh, well, this isn't what God wants. This is right. We ought not to do these things. They're God-fearers now. They may not have been before. They were complacent about things. They were comfortable, frankly, in their lives here. But now all of a sudden they're starting to see that as we shift to a foundationless existence, that is the secular existence, they have no objective moral truth to appeal to. They just have whatever's fashionable today. And think about the moral majority in the United States. It has shifted radically year to year over these last few decades. And as people see this happening, they're like, we need a foundation. We need to get back to what we were before. We need to go back to the founders. And I say, no, 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 it's far worse than that. What we need to do is repent of our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because only there is a foundation for life and truth and human uh, fulfillment and, and human flourishing upon this earth. That is the only place it's to be found. When we walk away from God, we walk away from the author of reason itself and therefore by default fall into madness. But many people are now politically motivated because of these things and want to move back to a foundation of God, but they're getting the cart before the horse because the problem is faith or a lack thereof. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember that even the demons believe and they shudder because of who Jesus is. That kind of belief doesn't save them. Believe in the kind of way that says, I'm forsaking my sins. I'm putting Jesus completely in charge of my life. I'm letting go of all that I consider mine that he would save me. God wants to save you, but you must come drink of the living water, eat of the bread of life, wholly consume who Jesus Christ is, and have your sins washed away by him. This is called unconditional surrender. That's the best way to describe how it is that we come to Jesus Christ. We proclaim the gospel that all of us have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and what is due to us is nothing more, or nothing less than the wrath of God itself in eternity because 
not because of the size of our sin, but because of the size of the God that we've sinned against, it will take eternity to pay for it. And we don't have eternity to pay for it, but we do have Jesus Christ. If we will trust in him for our salvation, repent of our sins and turn from it, just as he rose from the dead and proved he's the author of life, he will give eternal life to all those who believe and trust in him. Is it time for you to become more than a mere God-fearer? Call for a Peter to come to you and come to your house and explain these things to you. You know one. You know someone who has the true gospel in their hands that can explain it to you, that can come to you and teach you the truth. And you and your whole household could be saved. That's my first encouragement to you. The second one is like unto it. For those that already believe, is it time to take more full advantage of the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, how do we take more full advantage of the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible encourages us to be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? I can tell you how we get there. Devotion to God. The spiritual disciplines of prayer and meditation upon his word, memorizing the scriptures, not all of them, just just some, just the ones you find most helpful, and being with the people of God and studying the word of God and joining God in prayer. And any believer will come alongside you and help you in these things if you will but call them to you. And so take more advantage of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, is it time to respond to God's command to go and make disciples? You notice Peter was prepared for this, and God will prepare you too if you will but seek him and pray for the opportunity and then pray for the ability when the opportunity arrives, and God will grant you an affirmative to those prayers. God wants you to share his gospel. He wants you to be blessed by the blessings that come with that proclamation. And I can tell you that if you share the gospel, you will be encouraged regardless of the response to the gospel. You will be encouraged by just preaching the word of God. And no, you don't have to be a preacher and you don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be anything else. You just show up, open the Bible, start at maybe Romans chapter three or John chapter three. Just read there and just say, look what the Bible says about this person, Jesus. Is it time to respond to God's command to go and make disciples? Consider and pray about these things today. Let's close in prayer together. Father God, we praise you for this great account. And Lord, as we study this more, this this time and the next time we get together, Lord, I pray you'll give us great understanding understanding of the truth that will affect our lives for that is the only true knowledge is knowledge that performs just like the only true faith is faith that works lord i pray that you will just minister mightily to us today by this message i pray that you will grant the hearer faith to take their next step and faith to reach out to the people of god for help for assistance for growth for taking that next step together with him. For Lord, you've called us to do nothing alone. Everything you've called us to do, you will equip us to do by the power of your spirit and your great church. Lord, we thank you for that. And I pray now that you'll grant us each faith to make a move toward you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
and amen. And I hope this has found you well. Remember, you can contact me uh, directly, whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com, comes right to my phone, and I will respond to you personally and help you. I can help you find a church in your area. If you're not in our area, I can help you with your uh you know, to answer your questions. I can help you even with other people. If you have others that have questions or need help, uh, bring them to me and I will, I will see what I can do. I will open up the scriptures and tell them the truth. God bless you.